Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Thank you everyone for joining us today for worship. And for those watching us online, thank you very much for joining us. I pray that the Lord will bless you richly for being in His presence today. Uh, As you know, we are in a series where we asked you, what would you like to hear about? And... um, Pastor Barry decided to allocate everybody some topics to speak on. And the topic that I was given today was the Kingdom of God. I find myself very inadequate and I feel the burden on my shoulders to talk about this topic. Because it is one of the most central, complex and comprehensive topic. I just pray that the Lord enable me to speak and the Lord enable you to hear that which he wants us to hear and know today. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, the kingdom of God is the central concept. It is the overarching, all-encompassing truth to which everything is rooted in. It is the source of our steadfast hope, and it is the source of our joyful assurance. When Jesus began his ministry, he began with his words, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. When John the Baptist came with all the fire and brimstone, same words, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. When Paul, after his conversion experience, decided to take the gospel to every, uh, to Asia Minor and to the Mediterranean world, he would find a city, find a synagogue into the city, go to that city and engage with the Jews, telling them, persuading them, that in Jesus, their messianic hopes, the kingdom of God has come in this person called Jesus of Nazareth. That was Paul's ministry. And as he was under house arrest, even at that time, I think Acts Acts 28, we see that morning and evening, he invited people in his prison cell, telling them about the kingdom of God. So we see how majestic, how important this topic is. So before we dive in, uh, I was trained that we always define the terms and the definitions, we used to call working definitions, of the concept that we, we try to understand. So when we look at the word kingdom, or we start with the word kingdom, what does it mean? In plain English, it is the reign the dominion or rulership or absolute sovereignty of the king over a certain realm that would be a certain geographical region and a people under their rule. So, and also it has a time component where a certain monarch would exercise that kind of a... Can we hold that slide? (laughs) Okay. Where the monarch exercises that power, that dominion over that jurisdiction. So to make things simple in our modern understanding, here we have Queen Elizabeth II. She was the queen of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth realms. India, my country, is also part of the Commonwealth nations. And she reigned for 70 years from 1952 to 2022. Here we see a monarch who has a certain reign over a certain realm. And when I try to extrapolate that in understanding the kingdom of God, I fell, in sh- I fell short of words and images. I don't have an image of God to show you. <laughs> but I have something else. 
That's the, that's the image of our visible extant universe. That's the realm of God that we worship. That's the realm of the kingdom of God. Now, Elizabeth II reigned for 70 years. What is the time duration for God? Next slide. It extends to infinity in either directions. This is the best images I could find, time and infinity. We worship a God, we speak here about a God whose kingdom, whose reign, whose, is, we, we as humans cannot wrap around those concepts. But God in his, so I, I want us to just I'll take a step back and reflect the grandeur totality of God's reign and God's rule. Uh, as I said, we cannot fully wrap around these ideas, but God gives us verses that helps us think. When I think in Job 38, he says to Job, where were you when I laid down the foundations of the earth? Tough question. Or Proverbs 8.29, he says unto the waters of the sea, you shall come for this far and not more. Or we see in Psalms 147, he calls out every stars by name. And lastly, Psalm 150, verses 10 to 12. Every beast of the field, every bird of the air, every cattle on thousand hills are mine. This is the total claim, an absolute sovereignty that God establishes over the realm of his kingdom. This is the God we worship. The God of God and his kingdom is not constrained to time-space continuum. But we, however, as creatures, are bound to time, space, and matter. And we, have, we, we, we can only think in categories of things in the past, things now in the present, and those that relate to our future. We are limited very much by the nature of our being. God is outside. He's ontologically entirely different than what we are. But he condescends. He comes down to our terms to show us who he is, what his kingdom looks like. And in the scriptures, we see how he reveals those wonderful truths. The scripture as the revealed word of God helps humanity to see and understand God and his kingdom in categories relatable and understandable to mankind. This is a huge topic, so let me go a little ahead. The kingdom of God, apart from that big picture, we can, as we read the scripture, we see that it has had five stages of progression. Stage one, the kingdom, in, kingdom of God in human history. Kingdom inception. Genesis 1, God speaks into nothing and creates something out of nothing. He speaks the whole created order into existence. He creates man and women, women to have community. Then he delegates that control that authority, that dominion over the created order unto man and women. That is kingdom inception. As we come to, not, as we come to Genesis 3, we are in kingdom corruption altogether. Despite this privilege to, to, to be with God and to be his agents, be his stewards of his created order, man attempts to usurp and challenge God's authority. Discarding the direct instruction from God, you shall not eat. We decide, we know, man decides he knows better. And he embarks on a pursuit to become like God and to play God. The consequences are catastrophic and far-reaching. Since that day, 
creation has been subject to forces of decay and death. Despite that, we have a small ray of hope in Genesis 3 verses 15 when God gives the seed of that gospel saying that in due time, your seed shall strike the head of the serpent and he shall strike his, and he shall strike his heel. Next stage, kingdom restoration. With all this happening, uh, as we go through the history of the Bible, we see God elects a man from Ur called Abraham. Then he elects a family, Jacob and his 12 sons. And then he elects a nation through Moses to be instruments and mediators of God's blessing and redemption to the people and the nations of the world. Israel as a nation was called to serve as priest and prophet to the nations of the world. As priests, they would mediate for the nations of the world to God. And as prophets, they would bring the oracles, the laws of God, from God to man. That was the calling and the nature of Israel. This is God's kingdom restoration process. I have an asterisk, but I think it will be long sermon if I go there. But Israel has a tough history. Through the painful times of being ravaged by imperial forces of the day, back to back, and through the exile, and through the destruction of the temple and the city. People have lost hope. Where is the promise? And in those times, God, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through Daniel, reminded the nation, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. My covenants, my call is irrevocable and it will come to pass. And we see <clears throat> we see the wonderful and, and, to, and during this time God time and again gives us glimpses of the future when God will bring his kingdom to pass a son shall be born the government of the nations shall be on his shoulders there will come a time when the instruments of war would be beaten into the swords would be beaten into plowshares and the spears would be beaten into pruning hooks nations will cease to war with each other I don't know, I don't know, I don't remember, is it the calf with the wolf or the lion with the, one of those. So you get the point. A time, a reversal of things in God's kingdom. And every devout Jew, every prophet looked forward to that day, that amazing day uh, when, which is called the day of the Lord, when the, when the kingdom of God would come in all glory and splendor and power and would invade and destroy the sinful and the corrupt empires of the, of the day and establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice once and for all and begin a new age, a new history for mankind. Nation of Israel eagerly looked forward to this anointed one who would bring this kingdom. That's stage three, kingdom restoration. Now we come to kingdom inauguration. In the fulfillment of time, God himself decided to step from time into it from eternity into human history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. John the Baptist validates, yes, he is the anointed, the chosen Lamb of God. And we see that Jesus himself, when he declares the Nazareth manifesto, I am in, the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news. And we see this, and we see this kingdom inauguration um, while 
many of us feel it is one event. I think of it and I read of it as three events that happen together. Can I have the next slide? The incarnation, the resurrection, and the Pentecost. The three events that happen in three and a half, 33 and a half years inaugurated God's kingdom in the myth, uh, in the world. What happened in Genesis 3 was undone by Jesus of Nazareth in, th in 33 and a half years through the incarnation, the resurrection, and Pentecost. The kingdom of God was inaugurated. And finally, we come to the stage called Kingdom Consummation. It is the final, the most majestic event to which every God's people, every devout Jew, every Christian is looking forward to. When Christ comes back in absolute power and authority, overthrows the power of sin, Satan, and death, and establishes his reign and rule of his kingdom. There will be no sin, there will be no pain, no disease. Every saint will be in a glorified body with those who have gone ahead of us and we here alive here today. And we will be with the Lord for all eternity. This is that glorious hope towards which we look. And it's the final climatic kingdom consummation. Well, the sermon should be over by now. <laughs> if I were to stop here, I have given you a historical premise for kingdom inauguration, what happened in Jesus' incarnation, resurrection, and the Pentecost. And I also gave you a future hope, an event that lies out over there in time when he would come back, the kingdom consummation. But if I, and as true and great as they are in and itself, are we missing something? We, a major amount of the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be a remiss if we don't talk about the mystery of the kingdom that has to happen between the inauguration and the consummation of God's kingdom. The mystery of God's kingdom between the inauguration and the consummation. It is both the, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated right here now and also has a future element to it. Okay, we'll hold on to that. When we define, if we have to define the word mystery, we think of it as something deep, something um, dark, something diabolical. But the script, in the scripture, when you, uh, in biblical literature, mystery means that which God had kept hidden for his purposes and that which he has revealed in the fulfillment of time to reveal his redemptive plan. Big definition. But that which was hidden, now revealed, is the mystery. And can we go back to the slide behind? Let's have a look here. During the time of kingdom restoration, as the prophets uh, encouraged the people in the midst of exile and persecution and suffering, don't lose hope. God is coming. He, the day of the Lord is coming, and he will bring his kingdom. And righteousness and justice shall be, shall be established. Every devout Jew had this concept in his mind, that we are looking forward to that great day that will divide history once and for all. John the Baptist read the Old Testament. He had the same view too. Every disciple of Jesus had the same concept. But here when Jesus comes, when, when he is baptized, and we see in, in Acts 1.6, uh, sorry, we see in Matthew 11, chapter 3, where John the Baptist has doubts. 
Jesus, are you really the one who was to come? Because John was thinking in terms of the prophetic, Old Testament prophetic vision, the messianic vision, that God will come in full glory and power and would establish his kingdom. And what did Jesus do? Every time he preached, he preached about what? The kingdom of God is near. Every time he taught, he taught about living as kingdom people with new rules and regulations. Every time he healed or raised the dead or cast out the demon or did the miraculous, he was showing that the kingdom is in power, has come in human, in human history. So the disciples were very happy. They think, yes, in Jesus, with, oh, the kingdom has come. It's there, it's, and, and the power is being demonstrated in the life and ministry of Jesus. But little did they know, we know, and they're all excited, and for the last three and a half years, as they are with Jesus, and Jesus is teaching them, uh, they were of this mindset, yes, Jesus uh, is going to establish the kingdom. And, uh, and they all triumphantly walked towards Jerusalem, Right? thinking Jesus would right now bring fire and brimstone on Rome, on Pontius Pilate, on Herod. But they see an absolute U-turn. He's apprehended as a criminal, he's persecuted, he's convicted as a criminal, and is hanged on a cross. What happened to that Old Testament prophetic and Jewish messianic hopes and promises? For the disciples, it was bewildering. Even after the resurrection, when Jesus resurrected and came in their midst, the questions they asked in Acts 1.6 was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? They were still in that Old, in that old Testament prophetic view that God is going to invade human history and in one sweep uproot everything, destroy the powers that be, establish judgment, righteousness, and justice. And when they didn't see this happen, they were troubled. It literally took Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, or the infilling of the Holy Spirit, for them, for their eyes to be opened and realized what, and suddenly they could see a new understanding of this kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom. The kingdom is here, and it's now, yet it has a future component. It's after the Pentecost that they realized, and as they recollected the words of Jesus, what did he say, what did he mean by all those parables? The mystery became more and more clearer. Now with this mindset, when we start reading Matthew chapter 13 and all the parables in it, or, and Mark 4 and the parables in it, the disciples realized, wow, this is different. All these years, for three and a half years, they traveled, Jesus taught, Jesus preached. They never had that view. They were stuck in that old uh, Old Testament view. But now they see the kingdom in a different perspective. That the kingdom is here. And they start looking and to understand the kingdom, okay, what is that mystery of the kingdom? Jesus began to teach them in a series of seven parables back to back. And now they understand it better in the light of the Holy So that's why I said the kingdom was inaugurated when the three events happened together. The incarnation, the resurrection, and the Pentecost. All even that, all the three events happened. Could the disciples realize the mystery of the kingdom of God? So when we go to, um, do we have next? Yeah. 
So the revelation of the mystery of, of the mystery of the kingdom of God is again through parables. So what's a simple definition for a parable? A parable is a common everyday life event that serves as an illustration to a deeper theological truth. God uses something, or Jesus used something that would happen in an everyday Palestinian home, an everyday activity, and would use that event to convey or illustrate a deeper theological truth. Now, understand, I'm talking about post-Pentecost, the, the disciples now reread or recollect or reminisce what Jesus taught about the kingdom. Now they look at the parable of the, uh, so uh, in Matthew chapter 13, uh, can we have the next slide? This is a very familiar parable, the parable of the sower. He talks about how the kingdom has come in power, yet it is not in a way that would force itself uh, in, uh, unto human heart and unto human lives. The purpose of the parable is to convince, uh, the, the main emphasis of the parable is the soil or the heart of the, hum, of the human heart. The kingdom of God has come. It is right here, but it depends on every individual human person, how they receive the message of the kingdom. We know, I'm not going to go into the details of it, the first kind of heart, they were indifferent. They could care less what God's kingdom meant to them. The second one, the stony ground, they were the sentimental, emotional, superficial Christians. Oh yeah, they love to get in when everything is going well. Uh, Jesus looked at the crowd. Many people would have come because the whole town's gathered. It's like a town event. Um, it's a good vibe, there's good food uh, after the event. So, the second kind of soil shows more like a sentimental, superficial Christianity or superficial faith. Uh, the message or the principles of the kingdom never went deep in and when trial or tribulation came, they could not bear fruit. They withered away. The third one, and this is where I feel a good number of Christians go back and forth in. The seed has a had a resemblance of life. It grew a little bit. But what does the scripture say? The the cares of the world, or the worries of the world, the deception of wealth, and the desires for the passions, or, or the passions of the world, choke the life out of them. The kingdom of God is here. Yes, one day it will come in power and glory, and you will not be able to resist it. But today it is here, in a, in a, most, in a very pervenient way, nudging at you. So that's, that that kingdom principle would lodge in your heart, and that that would bear its fruit out. Because there is coming, this parable alludes that towards the end there will be a harvest. There will be a harvest. And there will be a separation of the seed, uh, of the wheat and the chaff. The second parable is about, um, can you have the next slide? Can somebody tell me which is the wheat and which is not? Here the parable is about how God allows the wheat and the weed to grow together. In the early years of the germination, we would not even be able to say which one is the wheat, which one is not. But as they grow, they start tilting, and the servants come. To, so when we read the parable, the second parable, uh, the, the servants come to the master and say, should we not take the weeds away? The master says, no, you're going to hold on till harvest time. 
Because if you try to, if you try to take off the weed, you're going to take off the weed as well. This, the applications of these parables are for them then and are for us now. It is very contemporaneous to our times as well. God allows the righteous and the wicked to come up together. But there will be a time when they will be separated and they will be judged. So these two parables talk about the reality of the kingdom in the here and now. And also points toward what will be the eventual outcome of those who accept the kingdom and those who would not accept the kingdom. The next set of parables. Can I have the next slide? That's a mustard seed. And um, it is so small. Again, many people get um, the, the, the faculty, sorry, the, um, the field of interpretation is so vast that people can have different take on it. But to keep it easy, the purpose of this parable is not the growth or other thing. The purpose of the parable here is to focus on the insignificance or the insignificant size of the mustard relative to what it will become and how it will be a blessing. The insignificance of that mustard seed is the crux of that parable here. We know it grows to be a big shrub, uh, almost uh, 12 to 15 at max. It's not a big tree, and many people fight over that as well. Uh, I don't want to go there right now. But, um, and then birds come in, and so that's a sign of God ble blessing and everything. But here, my key word is the insignificant nature so what is God saying? Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is insignificant. It may seem insignificant. This is so counterintuitive to the Jewish mind because they are expecting an apocalyptic event to happen on the, on the day of the Lord. And here Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom of God is going to come like a very insi seemingly insignificant incident, like a mustard seed. When we go to the... The next parable in Matthew 13 is that about the East. Back in the day, today at least we have East which we can purchase. So I wonder if you take a full bowl full of flour and you put East in it and you just mix it up, would we be able to separate out the East and the flour? Women, can we? Back in the day they would take a small lump of uh, the, the dough that was made a few days back, and they would take that small lump, now they have the big lump here, freshly made, they would put that lump right in and knead it up again, nicely. Could they separate out that small lump, the fermented lump, from the rest of the floor? They cannot. So what is, it, what is the message of the parable here? The inconspicuous, unrecognizable nature of the kingdom of God. The mustard pointed towards the insignificant, the seemingly insignificant size of the kingdom of God, and the east pointed towards the inconspicuous, unrecognizable nature of the kingdom of God. But while it talks about, but what is the outcome? The size and the insignificance is not able to stop the final growth and outcome of the mustard shrub. And the East, though seemingly unrecognizable, will work its way and permeate and penetrate and make that dove big. We may see in our culture, especially in the Western world, um, as if Christianity has become insignificant, unrecognizable, totally abandoned. 
This parable should serve as an encouragement to us. The kingdom of God is inevitable. It's unstoppable. The kingdom of the gates of hate will not be able to prevent the growth of the kingdom. It may look insignificant, seem insignificant, maybe unrecognizable, but God, between the inauguration and the final consummation, God, the kingdom of God will grow and nothing would stop it. So here we, and there's one more parable in the Gospel of Mark where, in the Gospel of Mark where the farmer comes and sows the seed and um, then he goes, and he waits. There's nothing more a farmer can do. He, all he got to do is wait. There's life resident within the seed itself. The principle, the powerful life is resident in that seed. The farmer only ought to wait. And that life will come to fruition in due time. The kingdom of God is likewise to that seed. As preachers, ministers, as believers, we got to do is share this kingdom message. God will do the work of that kingdom, of that seed, to, to bring it to fruition. So all of these three parables show us the principles how the kingdom would operate in this interim period. We are to aware the reality of the nature that God allows good and evil to survive, to thrive for a time, that everyone, despite the power of God, Despite the God who reigns all of eternity and all the realms of universe, he would not force his way in anybody's heart. Second, uh, despite it, the, the kingdom of God and the message of the kingdom may look small like a mustard, may be unrecognizable like the East, but it will, it will eventually grow and penetrate and penetrate through all systems. Nothing can hold it back. This is the kingdom message. I wonder when the disciples heard it, maybe two years before Jesus was, they never made sense of it. They could never understand it. How many times Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples said, oh, Jesus is telling to the people. No. <laughs> Jesus, he, was, he, he had in mind the disciples too. They, were, they could not understand these principles. Only later, post-Pentecost, when they look back and reflect what Jesus was saying. What is the kingdom and how does it look? What is the reality of it? What is the nature of its power? How will it manifest? A man, 33 years old, never left his town, never read a book, never found, never was worthy to be included in Roman historical history chronicles. I'm talking about Jesus and his disciples, uncultured fishermen, who'd, who, uh, were insignificant, unrecognizable from the masses that lived and died back in those days. But God worked through them. That's the power of the kingdom of God. Then we have two more parables. Next slide. The parable, I think the first one is the parable of the treasure. Here is a man, he walking through, through the field, and one day stumbles on a treasure. He was never searching for it. He wasn't searching for the treasure. He just accidentally stumbled on it. Back in the day, today at least we have banks or safe deposits where we can put in our valuables. Back in the day, they did not have that privilege. So if they suspected that their village would be raided or something worse could happen, they would take the valuables, put it in a box, find a field, go there and bury it over there. And should they survive the invasion or stay alive to see another day, they go back and retrieve it. 
And if they're not, that treasure lays hidden until the next person finds it. And here is a man who walks through the field and finds one such treasure. He never looked for it. He just stumbled into it. What is the principle here? Kingdom principle. <clears throat> what does the man do after he finds the treasure? He goes and sells everything he has to take possession of the field. The kingdom principle is this. The kingdom and the principle of the kingdom that God loves you and that he has a plan and a purpose for you and that he wants to be in a relationship with you. This message of the kingdom is more valuable than any plans that you would make for yourself, any ambition that you would want to pursue or anything that you would want to accumulate in your life. Would you sacrifice tomorrow if you have to make a choice uh, between the kingdom and your own personal agendas? That is what the parable is hinting at. And I think of, um, I think of the thief who was crucified next to Jesus. What did he say? Lord, please remember me in your kingdom. I feel he just stumbled across, but I'm happy he did. And what did the Lord say? Yes, today you shall be with me in paradise. And when we, when we look at the other parable, the parable of the pearl, this is a different case here. If you carefully read, here's the pearl collector, diligently, carefully looking for the finest pearls he can find. Unlike the other person who just accidentally stumbled into a treasure. He's looking for a pearl, the finest one, or the finest diamond you could find. And he finds one. And when he finds one, what does he do? He sells all the valuable, everything that he counts worthy and valuable, he sells it off to buy that one pearl. What is the kingdom principle here? Is there anything more valuable than God, his kingdom, his plan, his purpose? We are talking about the few images that, you showed, that I showed you earlier. Is there any treasure in this world that would match up to God and his kingdom and his will and his plan for our lives? Here I think of the teacher of the law, or the Pharisee, uh, who came and asked Jesus, what do you think is the greatest law? And Jesus tells him, love the Lord and love your neighbor. And this Pharisee, though to the group he believed was the most hostile to Jesus, he tells to Jesus, yes, Jesus, Master, you have rightly said, the greatest of the law is to love God and to love your neighbor. What was Jesus' reply to this teacher of the law? You are very close to the kingdom of God. Here was a teacher of the law, diligently seeking and trying to understand the truths of the law. And when he heard Jesus' words, he knew, yes, that is true. That must be taken hold of. And Jesus said, you are very close to the kingdom of God. What do we see in these two parables? Here we see the value. What might feel insignificant, what might feel unrecognizable and small. Here, Jesus reverses that and puts up of absolute value. For, for, for our lives. And last parable in the mystery of God's kingdom is the one, yeah, that's a dragnet. Do you see the dimensions of it? It's just, it's just put all through that and multiple boats pull it and literally they drag everything they can find in that net. So when you, the next time when we read the parable, this is what it's being implied. The net tries to pull in every, and I love the word here, all kinds of fish. Everyone's going to get trapped in that net. 
and the servants are going to bring it over, and they're going to take, and we're going to expect all kinds of fish, tilapia to, I don't know, tuna. Or, uh, my, my, the emphasis here is all kinds of fish. And then finally, there's going to be a sorting out, the good fish and the bad fish. Again, the, Jesus closes that fi- the, 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 the series of the parables with this, that there will be a final in the day of God's kingdom consummation. There will be everyone that's invited in the kingdom, and there will be a final sorting out of the good and the bad. He began with the harvest principle, uh, parables, which shows that towards the end there will be uh, that God, when he comes in his king, when the kingdom finally consummates, there will be a separation between a good and the bad. And every devout Jew who looked forward to that day will see this time when Christ comes back in power, in glory, in judging the wicked and the unrighteous, in establishing righteousness and, judge, and justice in this world. This is what, the, uh, when we, we live in this time when these parables, Jesus spoke these parables to the disciples, but we are living in a contemporary time where these parables mean and teach us a lot. God's kingdom is here. He is very generous, like a farmer. He, he scatters out the seed of the kingdom. Every heart that's willing, that's yielding, will bear fruit. And many times we feel, oh, God is not just the rich and the wicked flourish together. Yes, that is in God's providential plan. But there will be a judgment. Through the parables he encouraged, yes, you may not see the outward glory and manifestation of kingdom. It may look insignificant and inconspicuous, but the kingdom of God is unstoppable. It will find its way. Second, the kingdom of God is of great value. There is nothing under the sun or in your lifetime that you would have that would be comparable to what Christ did for you and what Christ intends to do for you in the future. The principle of the kingdom is most valuable than anything we could ever aspire or dream. We believe, we worship, and we serve such a God whose reign, whose rule extends to all eternity. And he loves us. If there's anybody in this congregation who's not yet understood or made a decision to this, this is a decision point. Life is pretty unpredictable and short. And it is God's will and his desire that everybody would come to know him and to be a part of his grandest, grandiose kingdom one day. And he doesn't wish any to perish. The golden words of the Bible, for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. Sovereign God, creator, sustainer of this vast universe, every power, all-powerful, all-knowing, yet you care for us, Lord. Yet you loved us and created us, Lord, to have fellowship with you. And despite our failings and our weakness and our sins, you sent your Son for our redemption. And you gave us your Spirit to live empowered lives, to live kingdom lives, Lord. We ask of you, strengthen us, Lord, to 
open our eyes and open our hearts to see the harvest that's coming, to see the value in the kingdom, to not be swayed or not, to not be troubled when we see persecution and trials and afflictions that afflict the righteous, but the wicked seem to go scot-free. Help us to keep our eyes on you at all times. Blessed are the poor and the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And should persecution come, Lord, help us to know what you have spoken to us through these parables, that we might stand for you and for your kingdom. Blessed are the righteous. Blessed are those who undergo persecution, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We thank you for these wonderful promises. Lord, I pray that if there's any heart here that, has, that is struggling or that is receptive to this truth, that you will minister to them and strengthen them. Thank you once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.